From the KBIA Newsroom in Columbia, I'm Ryan Famuliner. Last November, MU was rocked by protests led by African-American student group Concerned Student 1950. The group of 11 students captured campus attention with its message that university administrators were not doing enough to address racism on campus. One of the group's members began a hunger strike that he said could end one of two ways, with then-UM System President Tim Wolf's resignation or the protesters' death by starvation. The story went national when the MU football team announced a boycott in support of the hunger striker. In quick succession, Tim Wolf resigned. Former MU Chancellor Arbo and Lofton stepped down, and it all unleashed a storm of criticism and debate. How did the University of Missouri get to this point, and how might its path forward navigate the complex landscapes of university funding, policies and staffing, student demands, and Missouri politics? That's what we're exploring in our special three-part series, Mizzou at a Crossroads, from the KBIA Newsroom. In part one, we examine the history of racial issues and student demonstrations at MU, because to understand how we got here, it helps to look back. Later, we'll do that by listening in to a conversation between a black MU student activist from the late 1960s and a member of Concerned Student 1950. We have to keep doing what we're doing if we want to affect uh, substantial change in the long run. KBIA's Sarah Shariari and Rebecca Smith have the story. I'm Sarah Shariari. Back in August 2014, Ferguson, Missouri found itself at the center of a national debate about race after white police officer Darren Wilson shot and killed African-American teenager Michael Brown. Less than a year and a half later, that focus shifted about two hours west. Once again, Missouri took center stage, this time at the State University's flagship campus. But why Missouri? Missouri is not the biggest or most populous or the richest or the poorest state. As an entire state, it's neither the most urban nor the most rural, the most African-American nor the most Caucasian. Likewise, the University of Missouri is none of these things. But if you spend much time looking into the history of Missouri and of the university, you'll find that they were both forged in the fires of a nation deeply divided over race. With its geographic position between north and south, east and west, Missouri stands at a crossroads of policy, migration, and culture. So before we look forward, let's look briefly back. I mean, it was a huge fight for about a year in Congress trying to determine whether or not Missouri would enter as a slave state. And it was kind of surprising to to Southerners because up until that point, there really hadn't been a whole lot of debate about that at the national level. If, you know, a state wanted to enter as a slave state, um, nobody really complained about it. That's historian and UMKC professor Diane Moody Burke. You know, it was kind of the beginnings of the abolition movement in the North, and there were some Northern congressmen who did not want to see that happen. Um, Sometimes because of, well, some of them, it was for humanitarian reasons, but For a lot of them, it was really for political reasons. Um, They were concerned about the growing power of, um, of, you know, politicians from the slave states. They didn't want to see, you know, another slave state enter the Union because of that. Um, And so they fought quite, quite hard about it. Finally, to preserve the balance, Congress came up with the Missouri Compromise in 1820. Missouri then joined the nation as a slave state and Maine as a free state. And the Missouri Compromise determined whether all other new states would be slave or free, based on their location on the map.
19 years later, the University of Missouri was founded, and the first leaders of the school didn't escape the debate over slavery. Far from it. We're in the art gallery of the State Historical Society of Missouri with curator of art collections, Joan Stack. When the University of Missouri is founded, uh, the man they bring She's looking at a portrait of John Lathrop, the very first president of the University of Missouri. He, he was teaching the sorts of things that might encourage students to be anti-slavery. So a group of the curators, um, uh, kind of pushed by some of the legislators, the conservative element in the legislatures, started going after Lathrop. Lathrop moved north to become the first chancellor at the University of Wisconsin. Close by is another portrait. It's of the university's second president, James Shannon. Shannon was an outspoken supporter of slavery, a position Stack says probably contributed to tension with the legislature and Shannon leaving the university. It's clear that some early university leaders owned slaves and that wealth associated with slavery helped finance the school. James Sidney Rollins, a lawyer, politician, and slaveholder, is often called the father of MU, in part because he helped raise the funds to establish the campus in Columbia. He was in Congress during the Civil War and had originally voted against the 13th Amendment, which would abolish slavery. But later, Missouri abolished slavery at the state level, and a few days after, Rollins gave a rousing speech supporting the 13th Amendment. It's a long speech, and in it, Rollins writes things that at times seem to contradict each other. He writes that he would either support or abolish slavery, whichever maintained national unity. He writes that although slavery is wrong, he believes it ultimately helped people, and he calls himself, quote, an anti-slavery man in sentiment, and yet heretofore a large owner of slaves myself. He also writes that the institution of slavery cannot be defended on moral or religious grounds and says, quote, I am no longer the owner of a slave, and I thank God for it. For decades after the Civil War, the formerly enslaved people of Missouri were free, but not equal. The state constitution called for segregated education, which meant African Americans could not attend MU. But the state had to offer a school. To that end, what is now Lincoln University was established in 1866 in Jefferson City. But Lincoln didn't offer all the courses MU did. Here's Gary Kramer, director of the State Historical Society of Missouri. If an African-American student aspired to study, uh, to take a course of instruction that was not available at Lincoln, uh, the procedure was that they would apply to the University of Missouri, be rejected, and then take their letter of rejection to the legislature so that money could be appropriated to send them out of the state. Uh, and of course, it was, um, it was Lloyd Gaines who challenged that system. Lloyd Gaines went to Lincoln University, but didn't want to be sent out of state to attend law school. He wanted to go to MU, and he began a lawsuit in 1938 for admission. There were no black students at the university, and a black man had been lynched by a mob in Columbia just 15 years before. The Supreme Court ruled that Missouri had to either admit gains to MU or create a separate law school for African Americans. The university chose to create a new law school, 
and Gaines seemed poised to continue fighting on the grounds that the new school was not equal. But Gaines' fight never reached a conclusion. He was last seen in Chicago in 1939. He disappeared, and it's unknown what happened to him. Legal scholars say his Supreme Court case laid the groundwork for the Brown versus Board of Education ruling in 1954. The same year that Gaines disappeared, a woman applied to the MU School of Journalism. Here's MU Journalism professor Ernest Perry. The, the issue with, uh, with Lucille Bluford was she applied for uh, admittance to the, to the Missouri Journalism Master's Program, and they did not know that she was black until she showed up on campus uh, to register for classes. And once they realized that, they, that, that she was black, they basically said, no, we're, we're, we're not going to allow you to register for classes. Your, your admission was res- is rescinded. And then she took that case, or, or she and the NAACP took that case uh, to court. That had the same result as Gaines' case. The state created a separate journalism school. Perry says the student newspaper took polls of students to get their thoughts on the matter. And the students overwhelmingly supported uh, African-American students being admitted to the university. The university officials, they acknowledged that the students wanted to do that, but they weren't going to change their policy. They weren't going to change the separate but equal policy. Lucille Bluford's case was never fully decided. But finally, in 1950, the first African-American students at MU began classes. That was 66 years ago. Rebecca Smith. In 1950, the University of Missouri accepted its first black students. According to the Chancellor's Diversity Initiative website, nine students were admitted that first fall. And the university was making progress in the 50s and 60s. Sports teams were becoming integrated, black students were taking part in more student organizations, and black sororities and fraternities started organizing in the early 1960s. But by the late 60s, there were still just a couple hundred black students at MU. There were still numerous racial issues on campus as well. Discriminatory housing policies remained in effect until 1964 for on-campus housing and 1965 for off-campus. The song Dixie, which idealizes the days of slavery, was still performed at MU football games. In fact, there was one incident in 1967 where a Boone County deputy sheriff pulled a gun on a black student who was waving a plain black flag while the band played Dixie and other students waved Confederate flags. And the first black faculty member at MU wouldn't even be hired until 1969. So a group of black students came together and decided something had to be done. According to a book compiled by the university's Black Alumni Association in 1994, it was 19-year-old sophomore Howard Taylor who spoke up at a 1968 black fraternity meeting saying, quote, we need a legion of black collegians. Well, one of the, 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 the only real difference is the names have changed to, to what the situations are. You know? That's Howard today. Okay, I'm, my name is Howard Taylor. I'm a Mizzou alum. I attended Mizzou um, from 1965 and graduated in 1969. He now lives in Jacksonville, Florida, and is retired. 
He seemed excited for the chance to talk about his days at MU and his experiences as the vice president of the Legion of Black Collegians, or LBC. At, while at Mizzou, um, I was an active student in various um, things. And if you know anything about the 60s, it was a time of turmoil external to the campus. There was a burn, baby, burn movement going on. There were protests throughout the nation. And being a Mizzou, a black Mizzou student, our interest was how do we look at our environment there at Missouri and what can we do to change it in a peaceful manner? And that's what the Legions of Black Collegians is about, the peaceful approach rather than the destructive or the, the, the really antagonistic approach. So he and his fellow Alpha Phi Alpha fraternity brothers founded the LBC in 1968, even though they weren't officially recognized by the university for several years. He says back in the late 60s, black students on campus were dealing with many of the same issues as today. In 1969, they presented university leaders with a list of demands, changes they said needed to happen. Which was a lack of representation on the administration, the lack of um, instructors, professors that were minorities, um, the lack of coursework that was minority-oriented, as well as the lack of accessibility to some of the university facilities without being harassed because uh, we were minorities on campus. Um, and 46 years later, Concerned Student 1950 would present university leaders with their own list of demands. Some of the demands? exactly the same as those in 1969. In the decades following the 1960s, there were a number of other student protests at MU, many of them race-related. Racially-centered protests continued throughout the 1970s, and there were also protests against the Vietnam War at the same time. In the 1980s, MU students built a shantytown on the Francis Quadrangle to urge the university to divest from South Africa which it eventually did. In 2014, the group MU for Mike Brown was created following the shooting death of Ferguson teenager Michael Brown at the hands of police. And then, just last November, another student group emerged, Concerned Student 1950. MU journalism professor and historian Ernest Perry says all of these movements are connected. What we call the social justice movement today was the civil rights movement in the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. What was the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and 70s was um, what we called race, race issues or race matters uh, in the 1920s and 1930s. So the, the names are different as you move through time, but many of the issues are the same and it, it, all, it all centers around equality. Okay? And for, for African Americans and for people of color, fighting for the right to be considered an equal citizen in the United States has been a long struggle. And within that struggle, there are wins and there are losses. There are, there are ups and there are downs. One complaint voiced by activists last fall was that nothing has changed at the University of Missouri since the creation of the LBC in 1968 and the release of their list of demands in 1969. But Howard says that's not entirely true. I must say that there were, during the 70s, there were changes. And there were some changes made at the university as far as black professorship, um, black administration. But there were 
some changes made during the 70s. Beyond that, I think they may have regressed or not continued to progress. And this is not uncommon. Here's historian Ernest Perry again. You're always going to have what's called massive resistance. In 1969, when those lists of demands were, were brought out there, you had massive resistance to what was perceived by those who wanted to maintain the status quo as possible changes, and they pushed back on that. There were changes. I mean, you had you 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 could see you could see increases in the number of students of color on campus. Uh, you had the hiring of some uh, uh, faculty of color, not as many as as was was demanded, but you saw some. And for it, but you have to remember for for every win, there's losses. Last month, Diana Nash came to MU to speak for Martin Luther King Jr. Day. Nash was a vocal and visible activist in the 1960s that worked alongside Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. She was also a co-founder of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, so needless to say, it's fair to assume that she knows a thing or two about student activism. So when a student walked up to the microphone during her question and answer session and asked, What advice do you have for students of concerned student 1950? Nash replied simply, Well, I'm not sure you need any advice. (laughs) So where did Concerned Student 1950 come from and what are they fighting for? How are they different or are they different from the student movements at MU that have come before them? Well, to explore those questions, I sat down with Howard, who helped co-found the LBC back in the 60s, and with one of the original 11 members of Concerned Student 1950 who followed in Howard's footsteps, to let them have a conversation about their experiences at Mizzou as student activists almost 50 years apart. Meet Marshall Allen, a member of Concerned Student 1950. Okay, uh, my name is Marshall Allen. I'm a sophomore from Kansas City, Kansas. I'm double majoring in political science and black studies. I asked Marshall how Concerned Student 1950 was created. There have, there have been a series of injustices on Mizzou's campus that have gone unnoticed. Uh, the people don't really talk about or pretend that aren't there. Uh, stuff that administration tended to um, turn a blind eye to. I have had several friends who have had the N-word spray painted on their door or placed on statues uh, near dormitories and stuff like that. Uh, not to mention just everyday forms of uh, racism and stuff like that they had to face, you know. After that, what happened was we had a, um, there was this huge group me, and a group me, Mr. Howard, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, it's just a, um, it's, it's a form of communication for large bodies of people. So 60, 70 to 80 people could all be in it at the same time, putting in or adding to a conversation. Kind of like texting, yeah, but yes. it's, it just um. fits for more people. And so what happened was um, we went from there and eventually we morphed into um, the homecoming action. And so we figured that in order to make sure that no one gets more visibility than the other or that intentions don't um, uh, become tainted, we would go by something anonymous altogether um, so that way newspapers and uh, reporters could understand that it's not about us, it's about the bigger picture. Why is it so important that students are involved in change? And specifically, why is it so important that we have students involved here at Mizzou? Well, the university is there for the students. 
and they're there to learn. They're there to educate themselves. And from leaving Mizzou, they're going to take what they learn there out into the, the, the real world and, and start practicing those principles. So to make a change there, they're changing themselves as well as the university for the betterment of those that come. You know, I'm glad I was participated in some change in the 60s so that Marshall, you know, for whatever was worth, he's there, you know. <laughs> yes, and, and when he leaves, you know, he's going to leave it to somebody else. So in another 50 years, we won't be talking about the same thing. Um, just like Mr. Howard said, it's, it's definitely um, us. It's all about the students. Everything that goes on at the university um, on a university level first directly affects the students. I think that for students who are involved in this, involved in the, the various movements on campus, especially uh, regarding black students, it's it's important to have us involved because for the majority of the uh, of the time, it's going to be us that's going to be, I guess, accepted or looked toward to speak on certain issues simply because we have the education. Howard, I'm really curious to know um, that sitting in Jacksonville, right, uh, enjoying your life in the sun, you looked, turned on the TV one day and you saw Mizzou on the TV, um, people talking about racial issues for students, and you saw what Concerned Student 1950 was doing. What was that like for you to see that, you know, 50 years later almost, that we had students doing similar things to what you were doing. What did that feel like? Can you describe your experience for me, maybe? It was like deja vu. I see. I was there. I've been there. I've done that, you know. <laughs> and I support them, and particularly as the football team came out and did what they did at that time. Like I said, I was on the wrestling team, but most of the black males on campus were either football or basketball players. Mm-hmm. Um, I was involved with the wrestling team, but, you know, I say at the time I was there, it wouldn't have happened because of the scare of losing those scholarships. And and a lot of the football players at that time when I was there did not want to support, you know, I'll openly support the movements because of the concern that they have for their scholarships. I spoke with Saku Franklin, a historian that specializes in black student activism about this, the football team getting involved. And he said this is what made the concerned Student 1950 protests different. It's different what they did. What they accomplished was a big deal because... It's, it's often the case that as a, as a response to protest that universities will, will change leadership, but not so quickly. It may take a few years, um, but what the University of Missouri folks did was a little bit different, was a little bit more unique, and I would say special. And they did something <clears throat> that I don't think... I, I've seen, I've seen it. I've seen examples of this in the 1960s, 19, early 1970s. But in a contemporary perspective, um, they they were able to bring in those football players and challenge the university about its bottom line. That if we can, um, which is a form of nonviolent resistance, it's what's called non-cooperation. So they encourage a group of football players to not cooperate with the system, including potentially not playing football, which would have cost the system, you know, more than a million dollars. The young people have a lot of influence and power, and particularly the athletes. And I can tell you, a lot of universities are nervous. Now back to Howard and Marshall. Here's Howard. But, you know, just to see that on national TV 
And, and you know, I started telling people, I was them. Oh, you were and I was there. And the fact that since then, Michael Middleton has been named the interim president. And he was my roommate. He and I, you know, worked together to start the LBC and to start the, the, the fraternity there on campus. So we were very close at the time on campus. And the fact that he came back there, you know, as a, as a law professor, you know, and to see that something has happened from the 60s and the fact that he's there and that he can make a difference from the point of view he, he has now is, it seems very important, you know, to, to the whole organization. And hopefully he has the student support to do what he can as an interim and, you know. Does the fact that you guys are you know, fighting for, working toward the same things encourage you that, like, the movement is continuing or discourage you that change has been so slow or so non-existent? It's discouraging to me that it has been, you know, non-existent and, and, and so slow to change or it has changed and, and regressed it's, it's in some cases because there was not a focus on it. And the administration needs to maintain a positive focus going forward. To, to make everything work? Um, for me, having come after so many pioneers uh, like yourself, Mr. Howard, there, there comes a sense of cynicism. I come into this, a lot of us come into this knowing that history always repeats itself. So um, I, I'm in total agreement. It is very discouraging at times to see that, but at the same time, it's also fuel for us as a means to, to make sure that we understand that uh, we have to keep doing what we're doing if we want to affect uh, substantial change in the long run. During the conversation, I also asked Marshall about one piece of the protests from last fall that still puzzles many people. Why did Concerned Student 1950 focus on former UM System President Tim Wolfe when a lot of the animosity on campus last fall had been directed at former MU Chancellor Arbo and Lofton? Uh, it, because it's, it's kind of... Um, I guess, a, a bureaucracy. Targeting Tim Wolf um, was more in line with how we feel and dealt with um, structural depression because it's, it's, a, it's a top thing. It starts from the top and then it goes down. So if Tim Wolf can remain negligent about the problems of his students and our concerns and what we're asking for and our safety, then that means Chancellor Lofton is going to feel the same way. He's going to be negligent of our, our, uh, our concerns, our safety, and then um, the administration is going to do the same thing, and then the, the deans, and then the faculty, and, and the professors, and then uh, uh, the students uh, eventually. And so the reason why we targeted um, Tim Wolf because we knew that we had to make a head change. And we figured that getting him out or making sure that we got him to resign was one of the first steps in making sure that we had change because if, if, if the change starts at the top, then the bottom has to follow. In part two of our series, Mizzou at a Crossroads, you'll hear from KBIA's Christopher Husted and Bram Sablesmith as they take a look at the university's decision to hire Tim Wolf and how the way the next system president is hired could look different. From the KBIA newsroom in Columbia, with Sarah Shariari, I'm Rebecca Smith.